We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. Mm. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today's episode, the Central Intelligence Agency's ties to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. A history that dates back previous to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. However, we'll keep it recent and talk about the history of the last 20 years prior to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. July 11, 1997. The Senate confirms by unanimous vote George Tennant, a Georgetown graduate, standing with his right hand to confirm his appointment as director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Tenet was seen as a visionary, and what he saw was an agency on the brink toward the abyss of history. Then U.S. President Bill Clinton was wary of Tenet, but grew warm to him over the next 12 months. Richard Clark, the head official of the U.S. National Security Council, was also quite close to Clinton, briefing him on matters regarding to terrorism. Tenet would begin the process of transforming the CIA into a global interagency force where human intelligence, human, would come from secretly placed spies in Arab cities where there would be suspected terrorist cells in place. Now the CIA would have two primary divisions, information acquirers and information processors. Both of these divisions would have their own way of collecting and ascertaining and processing information and how it would be disseminated to their handlers and superiors. Every capital in the world has its own secret agency station, anywhere between a handful to a slew of case officers were designated in each station around the world. The CIA case officers recruited and ran assets, informants, and spies. Station chiefs, however, collected said information and reported back to Operations Division of Headquarters, called the Directorate of Operations. This was how the CIA operated all over the world. Tenet saw fit to sell ideas to Clinton during White House briefings in the morning about a Saudi financier who was beginning to make the rounds, Osama bin Laden, who was at this time living in the Sudan and starting to pop up on cables at the station in Khartoum. By 1995, David Cohn, head of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, along with top-level CIA officials, began implementing the idea of constructing a virtual station tasked to monitor the finances of bin Laden and his group, Al-Qaeda. At this point, Al-Qaeda wasn't involved in any terrorist operations. In fact, the genesis of this group began in, Al in Afghanistan, in which they derived from a camp called Al-Masada, also known as the lion's den. Basically, 
a front for Afghans during the war against the Soviets. The unit would fuse intelligence disciplines into one office, operations, analysts, signals intercepts, overhead photography, and so on, according to Cohn. By 1996, in January, the plan was approved, and the choice to appoint station chief of the Bin Laden issue station was Michael Scheuer. Scheuer, a rugged but experienced asset who could even speak Farsi, was actually an invaluable asset at the time, considering that Michael Scheuer was qualified not only to head the operation and the station itself, but his background concerning Saudi affairs and Islamic fundamentalism was unheard of at the time. His first two hires were CIA freshmen Alfreda Ann Bukowski and Tom Wilshire. The station itself was an interdisciplinary group, drawing on personnel from the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the DIA, and elsewhere in the intelligence community. Wilshire was named the deputy chief of station. He also had a background at the FBI headquarters on Hezbollah investigations in the 1980s, while Bukowski was tasked to manage all the hiring at the center. She would grow to have a very seclusive but aggressive manner. Meanwhile, Bin Laden's stay in Khartoum was beginning to come to an end. Sudanese officials began contacting the Saudi Ministry of Affairs, negotiating the embattled Bin Laden to return back to the nature of origin, or force him to do so anyway. Saudi officials, led by Prince Turkey bin Faisal, the director of Saudi intelligence, cautioned about having him back along with his Mujahideen fighters. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, in February 1996, Sudanese officials began approaching officials from the United States and other governments, asking what actions of theirs might ease foreign pressure. In secret meetings with Saudi officials, the Sudan offered to expel bin Laden to Saudi Arabia and asked the Saudis to pardon him. U.S. officials became aware of these secret discussions, certainly by March. Saudi officials apparently wanted bin Laden expelled from the Sudan. They had already revoked their citizenship, however, and would not tolerate his presence in their country. Also, bin Laden may no longer felt safe from the Sudan, where he had already escaped at least one assassination attempt that he believed to have been the work of the Egyptian or Saudi regimes and paid for by the CIA. End quote. The CIA station in Khartoum already had a lengthy file on bin Laden that went, bar went back as far back as 1992. Donald Pedersen, the American ambassador to the Sudan, knew all too well that bin Laden was conducting operations and running training camps along with Egyptian and Saudi members of Al-Qaeda, led by Abu Ubaid al-Banshari, Abdul Hadi al-Iraqi, and Abu Hafsa al-Masri also known as Mohammed Atef later. Pedersen has sent U.S. diplomatic cables back to Clark at the National Security Council about information regarding a burgeoning terrorist cell operating out of camps, Al-Damanzine farms, and Soba farms. Bin Laden had also run numerous businesses, legitimate ones, to, louder, to launder illegal finances, such as Themar al-Mukbaraka, Taba Investments, Al-Hijra Construction, Laden International, Wadi al-Aqiq, and Kudarat Transportation. They would cover transportation, road construction, farming industries, etc., Running the daily finances was a Lebanese native and Afghanistan contact 
Wadi El-Hajj. El-Hajj had a home in Arlington, Texas. El-Hajj also had a questionable background, which led to a previous tie to the assassination of Jewish defense leader Rabbi Meir Kahani in 1990, in which a 1993 World Trade Center bombing suspect, Mahmoud Abalima, had once asked El-Hajj to purchase a 38 caliber revolver for him. That same gun was used by El Said Nusser to assassinate Kahani in Manhattan just a short while after its purchase. Meanwhile, top CIA officials back in Maryland began constructing an idea to assassinate bin Laden while he began his routines in Khartoum. According to Billy Waugh, CIA field operative in Khartoum, he tracked down bin Laden in the Sudan and prepared an operation to apprehend him, but was denied authorization from the State Department. Meanwhile, CIA operatives Wah and Kofor Black were also tracking down another terrorist operatives with no affiliation to bin Laden. His name was Illich Ramirez Sanchez, also known as Carlos the Jackal. Bin Laden, along with his Egyptian emir from the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Ayman al-Zawahari, were expelled from the Sudan after mounting pressure from the U.S. State Department. Operations at Alex Station, which was also known as the Bin Laden Issue Station, Alex Station, of course, nicknamed in reference to Shoyer's son, Alec, by Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer from the Defense Intelligence Agency and also involved with an operation called Able Danger. Alex Station began more hiring intelligence assets, which recruited also CIA freshman Jennifer Matthews, Michelle Ann Casey, and 12 others. They would later be seen as a close-knit group, mostly women, uncompromising to anyone other than Scheuer. They were later given a nickname by others who worked in the counterintelligence unit, the Manson family. Located inside a room, room 2600, inside Langley, Alex Station was cordoned off to anyone else besides staff and CIA leadership officials. Casey was tasked by Wilshire to head the biggest CIA operation of the last 25 years. A house in Sana'a, Yemen, had begun to gain interest from the NSA, who passed information along to CIA's Alex Station every once in a while. The NSA had long began monitoring a satellite phone used by bin Laden in 1992, in which one number bin Laden had called numerous times aroused suspicion. Who was bin Laden actually calling? And who was calling bin Laden? The house belonging to Ahmed al-Hada, an old Afghan colleague who knew the venerable Saudi bin Laden from his days in Peshawar. It was now considered a red number, meaning it was a hotline between bin Laden and al-Qaeda. However, the CIA had no means to listen unto calls made to the home and began implementing a listening station off the coast of Madagascar. The number 967-1-200578 was known only to the NSA and CIA. The number was never shared with the FBI or the State Department ever. Meanwhile, Al-Qaeda began conducting training camps in Nangrahar, Afghanistan. Bin Laden was a guest in the country invited by Muhammad Mullah Omar, the emir of the Taliban, who had given him refuge, knowing that he could use bin Laden's finances from his father's construction firm, the bin Laden, Saudi bin Laden Group, to help the, the Taliban gain more control of the country from its adversary, the Northern Alliance, led by Ahmed Shah Massoud. On the condition of his stay, that bin Laden did not conduct terrorist operations without the emir Mullah Omar's approval. Bin Laden agreed to these demands. 
In short order, however, bin Laden and al-Zawahiri began organizing an al-Qaeda committee, the World Islamic Front, whom openly declared war on the United States. In 1996, a fatwa signed by Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, Abu Yasser Rifai Ahmed Taha, Sheikh Mir Hamza, and Fazlur Rahman, Bin Laden declared that the U.S. government and its continued support of Israel, along with its incessant war against Muslims around the world, including past instances regarding the 500,000 men, women, and children in Iraq during the Gulf War. All Muslims are to kill Americans wherever you find them. This fatwa was not signed in 96, but in 1998. I made a mistake, but there was a previous fatwa in 96. This fatwa was created in 1998. Now, the State Department was made aware of this fatwa by George Tennant, who in turn devised a plan to capture or kill bin Laden. Shortly after this, Scheuer, who was promptly demoted to the Langley Library by Tennant, who quickly became tired of the passive means to get bin Laden. He was also quite wary of Scheuer's insular group. He then tasked Richard Blee, whose father, David Blee, was considered a legend within the CIA as the new station chief of Alex Station. Kofor Black was promptly named chief of the counterterrorism unit. Together, along with Tennant, would begin extrapolating on Tennant's new draft strategy called The Plan. U.S. President Bill Clinton disapproved of it, however, and according to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, On May 20th, Director Tennant discussed the high risk of the operation with Sandy Berger and his deputies, warning that people might be killed, including bin Laden. Success was to be defined as the exfiltration of bin Laden out of Afghanistan. A meeting of principals was scheduled for May 29th to decide whether the operation should go ahead. But the principals did not meet. The plan was never presented to the White House for a decision. Working level CIA officers were disappointed. No capture plan before 9-11 ever again attained the same level of detail and preparation. The tribals reported readiness to act diminished, and bin Laden's security precautions and defense became more elaborate and formidable. End quote. Bin Laden wanted to ramp up attacks against the United States, but he also knew it would bring unwanted attention to his hosts. With the recent arrest of Omar Abdel Rahman, also known as the Blind Sheikh, for his participation in the Landmarks plot, an operation under the watchful eye of the FBI, who had an insider, Imad Salem, working on building bombs to use on New York City landmarks. Egyptian radicals in the Gamma Islamiyah, a group co-headed by Rahman, had engaged in the massacre of Western tourists while visiting the Luxor on November 17, 1997, as a means to pressure the United States to release the blind sheikh. A group of six men, dressed in police uniforms, machine-gunned, and hacked to death with knives and swords, 58 foreign tourists and four Egyptian natives. Sheikh Rahman blamed the Israelis for the killings, and al-Zwahari maintained that the Egyptian police had committed it. However, the news went global. The crackdowns began in Egypt, under then-President Hosni Babarak of Islamic fundamentalists. Israeli intelligence began traveling inside the United States to begin top-secret operations involving monitoring Hamas and Al-Qaeda subjects without the approval or knowledge of anyone within the Justice or the State Departments. These spy rings inside the country were going unnoticed by many in the intelligence realm starting from 1999. Alex Station had begun receiving human intelligence reports about the activities inside the Yemen hub owned by Al-Qaeda. 
the NSA, who began monitoring all calls from the hub since 1996, have begun to have begun listening to numerous calls from a person named Khalad to the house. A high-level Al-Qaeda meeting was to be held in Malaysia. The NSA related this information to Alex Station and to the FBI's counterterrorism unit, I-49, located in New York City. The NSA only shared this data in hopes of these agencies returning with human intelligence information and photographs of the people inside the home who visited it. The CIA began following one resident of the home, known, now, known only as Khalid al-Madar. He was married to Ahmed al-Hada's daughter, Huda al-Hada. Al-Madar departed Yemen only to be followed closely behind by affiliates of the CIA station in Sana, Yemen. During his transfer, Al-Midar stopped over the Dubai United Arab Emirates, in which he would rent a hotel room at the Nihal Hotel. While he was away from his room, CIA officers would break in and photograph his passport and other belongings. This information was then passed to the CIA station in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, who in turn passed it on to Alex Station. The cable, entitled Activities of Bin Laden Associate Revealed, detailed that Al-Midar possessed a multi-entry visa into the United States, which would expire on April of 2000. It also had a photograph of Al-Midar. During the next morning, the cable, which came in at 6 a.m., was first read by Tom Wilshire, while the second person to view this information, Doug Miller, who along with Mark Rossini, Margaret Gillespie, and Ed Getz were members of O'Neill's I-49 unit in New York City. These were the only FBI agents working within Alex Station. Miller, upon receiving this information and reading it, immediately composed a draft cable which addressed the cable and its information. The draft was addressed to FBI headquarters in New York City, read, Midar traveled to Malaysia. Links between Yemen Hub and the U.S. Embassy bombings. Photos of the Malaysia meeting have been taken and sent to the FBI. Al-Midar had multiple entry visa into the United States, plans to stay in New York City for three months. Miller would then attach the CIA cable to the draft. However, Michelle Ann Casey, in command of the Al-Hada operation, had read Miller's draft. She would bring it to Wilshire's attention almost immediately. There, Wilshire orders Casey to hold off on sending it, in which Casey then attached a response, which is outlined in Miller's email. Quote, Please hold off now, per Wilshire. End quote. The Miller cable was on hold. With Miller and Rossini in complete shock, over why there was even a hold on sending, Miller would confront Casey, in which Casey would respond in kind, as explained by Rossini's own recollection. Quote, Listen, it's not an FBI case. It's not an FBI matter. When we want the FBI to know, we'll let them know. And you're not going to say anything. End quote. March 5th, 2000. For three days, a summit meeting held inside the condominium owned by Yazid Sufat, a former captain in the Malaysian army, had begun taking place with numerous high-level terrorist organizers from the Middle East and Southeast Asia, which included Khalid al-Midar, Nawaf al-Hazmi, Ramzi bin al-Shib, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ridwan Isamuddin Hambali, Taufik bin Atash, Khalad, and others. Malaysian authorities took photographs of the people involved in the meeting over the next three days, while CIA officials were monitoring the home as well. These photographs were then sent to Alex Station. Kofor Black responded about what he saw 
from intelligence gathered at the meeting. Quote, we surveil them. We surveil the guy they're there to meet. Not close enough to hear what they're saying, but we're covering, taking pictures, watching their behavior. They're acting kind of spooky. They're not using the phone in the apartment. They're going around, walking in circles, just like junior spies, going up to phone booths, making a lot of calls. It's like, who are these dudes? End quote. Just months prior to the meeting, Muhammad Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, and Ziad Jara, all from Hamburg, Germany, would visit upon invitation from two Syrian-German al-Qaeda operatives, Mohammed Haydar Zamar and Marmoon Darkanzali, to come to Tanak Farms in Afghanistan. Atta, al-Shehi, and Jara were also from Al-Quds Mosque, located in Hamburg, Germany, known as the Hamburg Cell for their very fervent beliefs in the Wahhabi doctrine preached by its imam there, Muhammad al-Fazizi. German authorities from the Federal Intelligence Service, or the BND, were monitoring Zamar for two years, which led them to open an investigation in Tal Quds and the Hamburg cell. Israeli Mossad operatives continued covert espionage operations inside the United States. And according to the liberal present uh, Israeli press, Haaretz, quote, many of the eavesdropping technologies in use around the world and developed in Israel were originally military technologies and were developed and improvised by Unit 8200 veterans. A former commander of Unit 8200, cited by James Banford, states that variant technology was influenced by 8200 technology. Verint, parent company, Converse's main product, the logger, is based on units technology. End quote. Author of The Spy Factory, James Bonford, would also state, quote, virtually the entire American telecommunication system is bugged by Israeli-formed companies with possible ties to Israel's eavesdropping agency, end quote. Carl Cameron, Fox News correspondent, would also state regarding the Israeli intelligence spy operations and the use of remote technology to spy on the FBI and the DEA, quote, several government agencies expressed deep concerns that too many unauthorized non-law enforcement personnel can access the wiretap system. Much of this access was, facilita was, was facilitated through remote maintenance, end quote. For over 12 months, the Israeli Mossad had used covert espionage rings under the guise of selling art. Many of these Israeli spies were young men and women who would ply their cheaply made artwork to the homes of the FBI, State Department, and DEA. District Attorney for San Luis Obispo County, Gerald Shea, would open his own investigation report in the Israeli cells who were operating without impunity inside the country. His final draft, entitled the Shea Memorandum, Shea would outline the problem in regards to information collected by looking at the police records, arrest reports throughout the Northeast and Southwest, a long and arduous task. Meanwhile, bin Laden had begun taking guerrilla operations with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed through the invitation from Al-Qaeda military commander Mohammed Atef. Mohammed, who was not a member of Al-Qaeda, and without his nephew, Ramzi Youssef, no longer at his side. He was without an organization. However, he did enjoy the individual freedom that came along without the organizational restrictions. In 1998, he proposed an idea which would involve members of the Hamburg cell much later. Attack the United States by using planes as the weapon and not bombs placed on the plane itself that Yusuf had devised in the Bajinka plot. 
The plan would have operate, operate, operatives acting as ordinary passengers who would end up hijacking 10 planes guarded by muscle hijackers armed with knives while a single pilot would crash into the plane into a specific target. At first, bin Laden told Muhammad he would think about this idea. And after a second visit by KSM in 1999, bin Laden agreed to the plan, but instead of the initial notion of hijacking 10 planes, he agreed to four, which seemed much more manageable. The CIA would begin receiving reports that bin Laden had begun staying in the vicinity of the Sheikh Ali camp, south of Kandahar. CIA assets from the region provided a detailed description of the hunting camp, including its size, location, resources, and security, as well as of bin Laden's smaller adjacent camps. Because this was not in an urban area, missiles launched against it would have less risk of causing collateral damage. On February 8, 1999, the military began to ready itself for a possible strike. U.S. President Clinton, however, at the last moment decided against it. The counterterrorism unit in Langley were quite dismayed. A perfect chance of killing bin Laden ended on a whim. All because Clinton feared a global reaction if they instead killed members of his wedding party that was nearby, would cause a global outrage from the Arab community. Tenet's new operation, the plan was beginning to experience the restrictions from the State Department guidelines of using drone technology to carry out operations, which was unheard of at the time. Wilshire continued to monitor through his assistant, Michelle Ann Casey, the Yemen hub, having human intelligence collection was of primary importance Meanwhile, the NSA managed to collect even far more metadata than the CIA, as they closely monitored the hub as well as Midar and Al-Hazmi by monitoring all phone calls made to and from the house. Five years' worth of calls collected by the NSA, not shared by anyone, not known by either the Justice Department or even the State Department. After the meeting in Malaysia, Khalid al-Minar and Nawaf al-Hazmi flew to Bangkok, Thailand, where, according to Richard Blee, in a National Security Council briefing, they would end up losing track of both men. Alex Station had lost them in a sea of people, according to the reports made to Richard Blee. However, according to Thomas Drake, former senior executive of the NSA, the NSA had never lost track of them. They continued monitoring both men as they entered the United States from Bangkok on January 15th of 2000. Although the date is alleged to be January 15th, there are reports they entered the country two days prior. They were seen at a Los Angeles restaurant by a Saudi intelligence operative, Omar al-Bayoumi, who then provided both men with a house, paying their first month's rent, and also assisting getting them a car. The FBI was never notified by Alex Station or the NSA about their entry into the country until 16 months later. Blee would give no further updates about the surveillance operation. By February of 2000, Malaysian Authority Special Operations Branch sends Alex Station video it had taken of the summit meeting. This video was never shared with anyone outside of the agency, even to this day. The cable which came in from Bangkok regarding Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi were made aware of to Blee, Bukowski, Matthews, and Wilshire. However, Rossini claims that more were aware of the men in Bangkok, which included Kofor Black of the Counterintelligence Center. The NSA had requ required a visa warrant to start listening to the calls of Midar and Al-Hazmi inside the United States. A total of seven calls in all were made. Those reports also not shared to any agency.
John O'Neill, head of the FBI's counterterrorism I-49 unit in New York City, began contacting Mark Rossini, his lead man at Alex Station, about what was happening over at the CTC. Rossini implies that the CIA were keeping him in the dark. Knowing he is the eyes and ears of O'Neill, he is not trusted by any member of Alex Station. Rossini tells O'Neill that he continues to be on the watch for any updated cables involving bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda organization, but that the fervent operators inside Alex Station are remarkably strict about what data should be shared inside the agency. Rossini is not alone in Alex Station, as other members of the NTC squad also employed to the unit that included Ed Getz, Margaret Gillespie, and Doug Miller, all would suffer under the university-held scrutiny of those within the agency and the CTC, causing Ed Getz to get into shouting matches with Tom Wilshire months before Getz would retire from the FBI. Bin Laden, meanwhile, begins ramping up terrorist operations. A plan was outlined to implement attacks worldwide. Jordanian intelligence intercepting a call between suspected al-Qaeda supervisor Abu Zubaydah and Qadr Abu Hasner led to mass arrests of subjects involved within the plot. Al-Qaeda operatives who planned to bomb the Radisson Hotel in Amman, Jordan, hijack Indian Airlines Flight 814 for the release of Pakistan militant Omar Saeed Sheikh, while, bombing, while involving a bombing of a U.S. warship, the USS Sullivan's, off the port in Aden, Yemen, and bombing LAX Airport, Los Angeles International. The plot, known as the Millennium Plot, involving LAX, was discovered under unusual circumstances. At Customs Patrol in Port Angeles, Washington, a patrol agent, Diana Dean, had begun looking into the trunk of a rental car in the possession of one Ahmed Rassam. Officials would find a cache of explosions, of explosives, that could have produced a blast 40 times greater than that of a devastating car bomb, and four timing devices which were hidden in the spare tire well. Captured and arrested, Rassam was thoroughly investigated and, according to the FBI, was part of an international bombing campaign known as the 2000 Millennium Bomb Plot. Rassam told investigators that he was to drive near LAX airport and detonate the explosives, killing anyone near the entrance. The CIA had gotten reports from the FBI regarding the operation. Director Tennant decides to ramp up his side of operations against Bin Laden as well. And in the spring of 2000, officers from the Bin Laden issue station joined others in pressing for Afghan Eyes, the Predator Reconnaissance Drone Program for, for locating Bin Laden in Afghanistan. However, the plan would not be entirely successful, as Tenet envisioned. This would come from bureaucratic conflict between the agency and those from within the State Department. Khalad was still being monitored by Alex Station, his name unknown to them as of yet. FBI agents in New York, however, were beginning to complain about the lack of cooperation from the CIA who were in charge of the Yemen hub investigation. Many within the FBI I-49 unit were complaining to their super superiors that they were stalling and sharing information with them. Outside of the intersectional agency divide, Kofor Black had begun implementing an idea to try and infiltrate Al-Qaeda using inside sources as double agents. It was co-opted from tenants the plan Part of its directives were explained in Steve Cole's book, Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden from the Soviet Invasion to September 10, 2001, in which, quote, they described their plan as military officers might. They sought to surround Afghanistan with secure covert bases 
for CIA operations as many bases as they could arrange. They then would mount operations from each of their platforms, trying to move inside Afghanistan as close to bin Laden as they could to recruit agents and to attempt capture operations. Black wanted recruitments and he wanted to develop commando or paramilitary strikes team, strike teams made up of officers and men who could blend into the region's Muslim populations. Israeli intelligence operatives had long mastered this form of espionage outlined by Black. Operators called Mr. Arim, which were Israeli and Arab units specifically trained to assimilate among the local Arab population that would take even months and years collecting information while hiding in plain sight in densely populated Arab neighborhoods located in places like Lebanon and Israel. They are commonly tasked with performing intelligence gathering, law enforcement, hostage rescue, and counterterrorism, and to use disguise and surprise as their main weapons. Their training is for long-duration operations that included four months basic infantry training at the Mitka Adam Army Base, the, IDA, the IDF Spatial Training Center, two and a half months of advanced infantry training in the same base, two months of the unit's basic training, which focuses on advanced urban navigation and the beginning of counterterrorism training, four months Mr. Avrim course, which covers everything from learning Arab tradition, language, and way of thought to civilian camouflage, like hair dyeing, contact lessons, and clothing. And finally, one month courses, sniper, driving, different instruction courses. On October 12, 2000, a U.S. naval ship, the USS Cole, docks at the port side of Aden, Yemen. When a small boat containing massive amounts of C-4 heads directly at a port side, exploding on impact, killing 17 and injuring 39. O'Neill was dispatched to head the investigation and was met with resistance from U.S. Yemen Ambassador Barbara Bodine almost immediately. Bodine disliked O'Neill's grandiose persona and his seemingly sexual arrogance toward women in positions of affluence. He would soon be pushed out of the investigation, which would be handled by his associate, Ali Soufan. Bin Laden later praised the attacks, who were suspected of being the mastermind. However, months after the attack, Abd al-Rashim al-Nasri was arrested and was waterboarded to confess, while Khalad, was also suspected of being a co-mastermind as well, was not captured. Alex Station, however, was still operating without pause. Rassam's information was indeed valuable, as he had relayed to investigators that he had received training from the Chaldean training camp in Afghanistan, between the period of March 1998 and February 1999. He also said trainees were explicitly instructed to attack military targets only, that it was an offense against Islam to kill or injure, or injure innocent civilians. While there, he is said to have met with Zacharias Musawi, a suspected 20th hijacker in the September 11th attacks. This information would later be used in an infamous White House CIA memo entitled Bin Laden to Strike Inside the United States, dated August 6th of 2001. The plan involving plane hijackings continued forward. Members of the Hamburg cell, Mawan al-Shehi, Muhammad Atta, and Zia Jar, were selected by Bin Laden to be the pilots of the planes that were to be used in the Tuesday attacks that was quoted by uh, members of the al-Qaeda organization. And so the initial preparations began. Ada had begun sending emails to Lakeland Academy in Florida. Quote, Dear Sir, we are a small group of young men from different Arab countries. Now we are living in Germany, 
since a while for study purposes. We would like to start training for the career of airline professional pilots. In this field, we haven't yet any knowledge, but we are ready to undergo an intensive training program, up to ATP and eventually higher." End quote. Meanwhile, Israeli spies have begun the operation of monitoring the members of the Hamburg cell as they entered the United States. How this operation initialized is not known as of yet. Ada, Al-Shehi, and Jara would reside in multiple areas in Florida, with Jara always staying alone from Ata and Al-Shehi. The Saudi GID intelligence arm had long begun funding and monitoring Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi, and now Hani Hanjur out west, in locations such as Los Angeles, San Diego, and Tucson, Arizona. The CIA's Alex station, according to Plea, now in the dark about the two operatives they were now following, closed the Malaysia summit investigation. This took place without any initial follow-ups in their White House briefings, which included reports to Richard Clark, who was left in a haze by the whole ordeal involving Blee or anyone from Alex Station for that matter. Intelligence reports coming from around the world throughout the spring and summer months of 2001 that included Italy, France, Canada, Germany, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Israel would also be vague regarding the details. Be that as it may, they all warned that the United States Intelligence Community something big was about to happen. Bin Laden, however, was the primary suspect involved, according to these same intelligence reports. By June 11, 2001, a meeting was arranged in the FBI New York City office between Dina Corsi of the FBI, Steve Bongard of the FBI, and Clark Shannon of the CIA regarding Corsi producing three photos from the Kuala Lumpur meeting in Malaysia. Corsi was asking whether Bongard knew anyone who was remotely familiar in the photos, to which Bongard replied he had no idea. Now, Bongard only knows of Fahad Mohammed Al-Kuso, who was arrested in the USS Cole bombing investigation, but Bongard doesn't see Al-Kuso in any of the photographs. This aroused suspicion, and Bongard also asked them who were the men in which the, the photos Corsi produced. Corsi tells him that due to restrictions, he, she, he could not be made aware of that information. However, Corsi, along with uh, Clark Shannon, does reveal the name of the man in one of the photos, only as Al-Midar. Shannon also states that Al-Midar has a Saudi passport, but doesn't tell Bongard about him possessing a U.S. visa or that he is currently inside the United States. The obvious fact did not pass from Bongard or anyone else from I-49. Alex Station was fishing to see if the FBI knew who Al-Midar, Al-Hazmi, or who Khalad was. In the afternoon hours of June 6, 2001, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice receives a frantic call from George Tennant. Tennant exclaims that he is currently en route to the White House and directs a set-up emergency meeting with staff from the National Security Council. It was the only time Tennant would arrive at the White House unannounced. Tennant was with Richard Blee from Alex Station as well. And as the meeting started, it was Blee who headed the conference. Initially stating that intercepts regarding the Yemen hub which was shared with the FBI, knowing this was false. He also stated that multiple attacks inside the United States was possible, but didn't elaborate on who or when. Richard Clark, present at the meeting as well, mentions that at no point during the conference did Blee or Tennant mention anything regarding Al-Midar and his U.S. visa or Al-Hazmi traveling inside the United States. By August 2001, U.S. President George Bush takes a 30-day vacation at his ranch in Crawford, Texas. 
There he is met by CIA daily briefers regarding the status of multiple warnings of terrorist attacks inside the United States. On August 6, 2001, CIA briefer Mike Morell gives the infamous presidential daily brief the bin Laden determined to strike inside the United States to Bush. The PDB did not mention Al-Midar or Al-Hazmi. Meanwhile, the Hamburg cell, led by Atta and Al-Shehi, moved to New Jersey. Zia Jara, however, lives alone in Maryland. He would also reside in New Jersey later, just days before the operations of September 11th. Jara, according to German authorities, was never seen with anyone from the Hamburg cell. All except once. At a wedding party of Al-Quds mosque member Saeed Bahaji in August in or October of 1999, a high-ranking German official with the BND remarked to the Los Angeles Times in 2000 that, quote, the only information we have connecting the three Hamburg suspects is the FBI's assertion that there is a connection, end quote. By August 16, 2001, Minneapolis FBI agent Harry Samet arrests Zacharias Musawi and Hussein al-Atas under suspicion of terrorism, as well as outdated U.S. visas. Musawi had sent numerous emails days prior to the Pan Am International Flight Academy in Egan, Minnesota. While training there, his instructor, Clarence Prevost, had noticed erratic behavior from Musawi, asking Prevost alarming questions, such as how to fly Boeings while not inquiring about landing them, how to fly at full throttle. In their rented room, Musawi had a laptop. Meanwhile, Aladas had a written martyrdom will made out. Samet had thought to himself, did he just stop a terrorist operation from taking place? Are there more operatives inside the city, the state, the country? Had the CIA not called off surveillance on the summit, Malaysia summit meeting, they would have also known that Masawi was also at the condo connecting them to Al-Midar, Al-Hazmi, and Kalad. The CIA continued the monitoring of all calls made into from the Yemenah. These intercepts over five years' worth had never been made public. They are still classified information. By August 23, 2001, Jack Clunan from the I-49 unit in New York City receives a call from Dina Corsi. The CIA discovers that Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi were likely inside the United States, but it is not where, where they are located. Clunan immediately assigns someone to begin locating the two men. He assigns a new recruit to the New York City field office, Craig Dananucci. However, he is told it is an intelligence matter, and not a criminal one, from his FBI superiors in New York City. The case is open with very few resources dedicated to it. In the FBI Minneapolis field office, a FISA warrant is being drafted by Agent Samet, who is met with strict defiance from the Minneapolis Radical Fundamentalist Unit, or RFU, led by Mike Maltby. Maltby, under orders from National Security Law Unit Chief Marion Spike Bowman, states that there is little evidence for a FISA warrant to search Musawi's laptop and Hussein Al-Atta's belongings found inside the hotel room. There would be heated internal arguments over the legalities of the FISA argument in the days leading to the September 11th attacks between uh, to the days leading up to September 11th between Samet and Maltby. Over in Arizona, FBI agent Kenneth Williams drafts an FBI memo, which is later infamously called the Phoenix Memo, in which entails intelligence gathered from FBI informants in Arab circles who witness an unusually high number of Arabs training at flight schools. According to part of the memo, quote, advise the Bureau 
and New York of the possibility of a coordinated effort by Osama bin Laden to send students to the United States to attend civil aviation universities and colleges. Phoenix has observed an inordinate number of individuals of investigative interest who are attending or who have attended civil aviation universities and colleges in the state of Arizona. End quote. The memo handed late to director of the FBI, Robert Mueller, was largely ignored. Meanwhile, Steve Bongard receives a phone call from Dina Corsi. Corsi informs him about Mar Maggie Gillespie finding a CIA memo from March of 2000 regarding Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi entering the United States, to which Bongard replies to Corsi, if this guy's in the country, he's not going to fucking Disneyland. Bongard's submission is not without irony, of course. By August 23rd, the United States finally submits Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar's names on the terrorist watch list. While the Al-Qaeda operatives purchasing plane tickets just week before the operation, William Binney, former NSA cryptoanalyst, states that if the NSA had implemented his FinTech program, they would have picked up on this information, which in turn may have stopped part of the 9-11 attacks from happening. All of these reports and warnings from the FBI field offices in Arizona, Minneapolis, and New York would all be largely ignored and or dismissed by their superiors. It would lead to disastrous consequences. September 11, 2001. Four hijacked aircraft crashed into the north and south towers of the World Trade Centers in Madden. One into the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and one into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Reports were flooding into every intelligence office building around the world. David Boren, former governor of Oklahoma, was having breakfast with George Tennant when an aide hurried up to the table where the men were sitting and whispered of an attack on the World Trade Center towers in Manhattan. Both of the men had a wide-eyed look in which Tennant, who sat in stunned silence for seconds before remarking to Boren or heard, who heard of all of what was said, I wonder if this has something to do with the guy who trained for the pilot's license in Minnesota. The frantic operators at Alex Station have begun reading the cables from abroad, now coming in like a sieve. The passenger lists for all four aircraft would also find its way to the counterterrorism unit in the, in the evening hours and handed over to a customs office of intelligence officer in which a staffer would later remark, oh my God, it's all of them. A Department of Defense staffer, Stephen Cambone, would begin jotting down notes while at a high-level National Security Council meeting in the war room of the Pentagon. The meeting was with the highest-ranking White House officials and Pentagon advisors. The note entailed the following. AA-77, three individuals have been followed since Millennium and Cole. One guy is associate of Kohlbomber. Two entered the U.S. in early July. Two or three pulled aside and interrogated? Was this information known to the FBI? It was not known to many in the State Department. Where did this information come from? Who withheld such data? Those questions will later come out during the congressional inquiries of 2002 and 2003. Over at the Jersey Turnpike, a national Beyond the Lookout broadcast, which was based on information given from a resident at Dork Towers in Jersey City, who saw three men celebrating attacks. The license plate of the truck was also provided by the woman, only named as Maria, who lived high up in the Dork Towers and saw the men acting erratically with her binoculars. 
East Rutherford police officers serving as traffic officers, Scott DiCarlo and Sergeant Dennis Ravelli, noticed the van, which was spotted on a service road off Route 3 near Jer New Jersey's Giant Stadium. The van had an emblem, Irving Moving Systems, on the right side. The plate number matched the Be on the Lookout, or BOLO, off by one number. DiCarlo noted it and advised the driver to get out, to which he did not respond to DiCarlo's request. The driver was forcibly out of the vehicle by DiCarlo, while Ravelli maintained the passenger side with his pistol out. Four others as well detained in full. In their possessions were a map highlighting the World Trade Center, Doric Towers, and the Battery Tunnel. Over $4,000 was found in the sock of one of the men. What was missing was rather curious as well. No tools, dollies, ropes of any kind that would be found in a moving vehicle. The five men detained were later reported as Paul Kersberg, Sivan Kersberg, Omar Mamory, Oded Elner, and Yaron Schmel. The detainees were thoroughly investigated by local police and the FBI. All five were Israeli nationals and had overstayed their visas. Two were Mossad operatives, Paul and Sivan Kersberg. One of the men, Omar Mamri, had a residence in Hollywood, Florida, just a short few miles away from the residences of Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shehi. The dancing Israelis, as the media nicknamed them, were released after 71 days of detention Pressure from New York State legislators, unnamed, had made some calls which were rather persuasive. And under the guise and leadership of Michael Shertoff, they were deported back to Israel. Meanwhile, on September 13th, high-level White House cabinet members, which included U.S. President Bush, Donald Rumsfeld, and U.S. Saudi Ambassador Bandar bin Sultan, held an emergency meeting. The contents of this meeting was not publicly known, nor was it related to the media. A week later, numerous members of the Saudi bin Laden family and the Saudi Kingdom, which included numerous high Saudi intelligence officials and members of the bin Laden family, were allowed to leave the country. According to Richard Clark, it came straight from the top. All the players who were involved in the funding of certain 9-11 operatives and those tasked to closely monitor them were now out of the country, free from investigations and from further inquiry. The mere mention of their involvement forever shadowed officials from the State Department and from rabid conspiracy theorists who peddled remarkable tales which absolved them of any complicity or even foreknowledge. Maybe that was exactly what it was meant to do. On September 12, 2001, the NSA was closed for the first and only time. Only essential personnel was allowed in the building. William Binney had dressed in janitorial attire and persuaded security to allow him entry. Upon arrival, he was met by one of the lead contractors after a high-level meeting with Sam Visner, chief of Signal's intelligence program, to which he told Benny he heard Visner state, quote, do not embarrass large companies the CIA is involved with, the NSA is involved with. You do your part, you will get your share. We can milk this cow for 15 years, end quote. Ed Loomis, NSA cryptologist from 1964 to 2001, would later state in a PBS interview, quote, all those people did not have to die. We could have saved them. We knew this was being planned months ago, but they would not let us issue the reports we wrote, end quote. Thomas Drake, former senior executive, would also elaborate in the futile nature of his NSA superiors, quote, Our primary responsibility as an intelligence agency was to provide indicators of warning, and we obviously failed to do that. End quote. There would be two congressional investigations held between 2002 to 2004. The 9-11 Commission 
and a joint house inquiry into the September 11, 2001 attacks. After months and months of inquiries and detailed reports from every section of intelligence and government officials, it was found that the CIA and NSA were not held responsible from stopping the attacks from happening. Not a single person was found irresponsible in their duties, not a single fire as well. Nothing. It left many in the public sphere to wonder, what did these investigative committees ignore? How could it not find a single item showing clear recklessness or even foreknowledge about the multiple warnings made many months prior to the terrorist incidents? To most people, these commissions were simply made to absolve the agencies from being held responsible in their lack of coordination with other intelligence agencies. While the foreign intelligence services of Saudi Arabia and Israel were left largely ignored altogether. That is, until one of them breaks the silence. That's the end of this episode. I'm Adam Fitzgerald of the Dark and Dower. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and we'll see you next month.